Hello, and welcome to the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast, where together we explore ways to help you optimize your health and achieve sustainable well being. No one deserves to live an unhealthy life because they are overtasked, overstimulated, and overwhelmed. I'm your co host, Dr. Laura Hayes, and we'll be joined by Dr. Parker Hayes as we explore new perspectives and strategies rooted in self awareness, deep connections, and science based practices designed to create lasting impact for you and those around you. Please keep in mind this podcast is for the purpose of education, introspection, and community connection and should not be mistaken for medical advice. Be sure to subscribe and share with others. Let's be well together. Hello to all of you. As I think you'll understand after this episode, when I greet you in that way, I do mean all of you. Welcome to Lasting Impact Wellness, the podcast that helps you optimize your health and well-being through science-based practices, practical knowledge, and honest discussions. I'm your host today, Dr. Parker Hayes. In biology, there are different terms for two organisms or species that live next to each other. Most people have heard of symbiosis, and most people know what a parasite is. Each of the two species next to each other can either derive harm, benefit, or have no effect from the other's presence. Commensalism is a symbiotic relationship in which one of the species benefits while the other species isn't affected. In mutualism, they both get a benefit. In symbiosis, at least one gets a benefit. And in parasitosis, one causes harm to the other. Well, if there was a relationship status between all the microbes that exist inside our gut and our native cells, well, it's complicated. There was a time that we thought of bacteria as germs. Kills germs on contact. We don't want germs We want things to be nearly sterile. We used to believe that the bacteria inside of us gained a lot from living there, but we didn't really get anything from them. But in fact, it's a very beneficial relationship to both under healthy circumstances. It's mutualism. We depend on what grows inside us to make things that we need, including chemicals that send messages through our body. They're vital in digesting our food, fighting disease, regulating our functions. It can go bad, but as one could imagine, if you had very close neighbors, it kind of has to do with how you treat them. You get back what you give. Today we have a conversation with Josh Deck. Deck is a medical lecturer, a holistic nutritionist, a former paramedic, and he specializes in helping people with bowel disease. He knows a lot about what lives inside of us, and we're ready to talk with him about it today. Josh, I'm so glad to talk to you today. It's a pleasure, and thanks for the work you do trying to make people's lives better and and improve their health. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I absolutely love doing what it is that I do, and there's nothing I'd rather be doing. 
Great. How long have you been doing this? You say in your uh, intros a lot, I'm an ex-paramedic, and I suppose there are probably other things in the wake of your career boat. How long have you been doing the current thing? Uh, just a handful of years now, actually. So it's been an interesting journey. I graduated, I, I got my paramedic license back in 2013, and here we are 10 years later, and it's a nothing but digestive disease and digestive health. Wow. And did you have any idea that was coming? When, when, when did the light bulb go off? Oof. You know what? It's interesting because it was, sort of a, it was sort of a bunch of happy accidents that got us here. You know, at first, I really wanted to get into healthcare. I love healthcare, but I realized that paramedics was just sick care. I picked the same people up for the same things over and over time and time again, and that was it. But when I finally got to this place, really helping people get better, it was one thing after another that really led into this um, transition. You know, after I left paramedics and became a personal trainer, I really realized the power of the human body to heal itself. You know, I was working with a woman named Lynn back, I was in my early 20s now, almost 10 years ago. And uh, 57 years old, she had 17 pills and insulin for breakfast, nine pills and insulin for bedtime. Uh, she was on CPAP, high blood pressure, disability list at work, one thing after another. And by the time we got working together, she was 57 years old when we started. By age 59, she ended up breaking her first world record as a power lifter. And so that just opened this whole door. And I started seeing sicker and sicker people for more things. I moved away from just the fitness, but I was sort of embracing this holistic role as a personal trainer. I dove into nutrition and gut health and hormone health and everything I did, there was this tie into the gut. And I ended up going back to school, became a nutritionist and I specialized in gut disease. And now it's the work I've been doing with people in the gut space that actually got me linked with these doctors. And um, I got recruited at the Priority Health Academy as a medical lecturer because of it. And the whole career is the rest of its history. Wow. It's a great story, especially uh, that it comes from a place of real inspiration with a real person and many people mm -hmm. that you may never know, but impact positively. So if I may, let me start by just asking you, how important is gut bacteria? What, what do they do? Mm. That's such a great question because our guts are everything. And I often say that they're more important than our DNA. And even looking at the genetic material, right, the human genome has 23,000 genes, but our gut bacteria has up to 3 million different genes inside of it. And so we have 130 times more genetic material in our gut bacteria than anything else in our body. And if we could take all our DNA and compress it, it would fit inside your big toe, whereas your gut bacteria could take up the rest of your body. And we have microbes in everything and everywhere that interact with every aspect of your being. They, they actually interact with your genes in your DNA. They help you sleep better, perform better. They, they're working with your mental focus and concentration and memory. We know they have a direct role to play in weight gain and weight loss. In fact, even most studies they've shown where they've disrupted the microbiome by flushing their guts out with antibiotics and then putting these mice on caloric deficits, they did not get the same bacterial benefits or weight loss benefits from calorie deficits like mice with healthy gut bacteria did. And so we dive in to say, how important are they? They are everything. And when I argue they're more important than our DNA, that is no stretch whatsoever. So that leads to another broad question, which is, how can our lives be impacted by a healthy or unhealthy gut? Mm. 
You know, I would think it's easier to ask the question, what isn't impacted in our lives by our gut? <laughs> because it's exactly that, you know, people who come in with gut issues. Now, I specialize in Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, right? Inflammatory bowel disease. But I see my fair share of other things, people dealing with irritable bowel syndrome or other digestive issues. And so what we're diving into, the complications that we see from it, what issues we can see in our life. I mean, ADHD, depression, anxiety, weight loss, resistance, diabetes, Alzheimer's. I mean, 93% of the leading causes of death on the CDC's own website, we can connect those back to the gut. We're talking heart disease, cancers, cerebrovascular disease or strokes, chronic lower, or lower respiratory diseases, uh, diabetes, Alzheimer's, kidney disease, liver disease, hypertension, Parkinson's, like influenza recurring infections can all come back to the gut. And that has a lot to do with how our guts actually work in our metabolism and how they help our bodies balance out every aspect of everything. But it also comes down to the fact that 70 plus upwards of 80 or 90%, depends on who you ask, of our immune system is housed inside of our gut. And so everything comes back to the gut integration. I mean, up to 40% of our thyroid hormone is converted from inactive to active between your gut and your liver and your gut and your liver talk to each other. And so it works in everything and how our guts are affected or how our lives are affected. If we have some kind of negative issue inside of our gut bacteria, I would venture to say that everything can break down from there. Leading causes of disease can be connected back to the gut in some way. So certainly at lasting impact, something we stress is the interconnectedness of mind and body, of uh, fitness and mindset, of any pairing you can name, in this case, the gut and uh, various other things that might seem far flung, your mental state and so forth. But that interconnectedness is what you're seeking to really highlight with the gut. Is that right? That's right. I think the biggest thing that I really want people to understand is the importance of our gut, how well integrated it is to every aspect of our body, every fiber of our well-being, and also to develop, I think the word I'm looking for is a reverence for our gut and gut bacteria. You know, even physicians right up until mid-2000s, 2010, have been taught that bacteria is bad, kill it, kill it all, always. We detect bad bacteria, kill it. And we just started learning back in the mid-early 1990s about the gut microbiome and how things really connect. Any medical student who's gone to school, any doctor will remember the story of Ignaz Semmelweis when they discovered the importance of hand washing. So our knowledge of bacteria really isn't even that old. And we're just now starting to learn that our bacteria are everywhere. You have them on your skin, your nose, your hair, inside every cavity. We have them orally. Women will have them vaginally. Every human has them rectally. They're in everything we do. And even just up till 15 years ago, we thought that even a placenta in utero was sterile, but now we know it's teeming with microbes. And so that means that the baby who's developing actually gets its microbes from mom, who got hers from mom before that, who got hers from mom before that, generations back to the dinosaurs. And so we know that these bacteria, we talk about genetics, we talk about diseases and you know the things that happen in life or the, the predispositions we have. Our gut bacteria are at the center of all of these things. It's at our development. It's at everything. And so I really want people to understand the vast importance of our gut bacteria, number one, but number two, how we can actually cultivate healthy microbes in a microbiome because there's so much we're doing in our day-to-day -day life that is absolutely wreaking havoc on every aspect of our gut and wellness. And if we're not aware of it, we're opening the door to almost every disease you can imagine. 93% of the leading causes of death come back to your gut. 
on top of other basic things, anxiety, depression, eczema, anxiety, um, you name it, joint pain even can be connected back to the gut like arthritis. And so we just need to understand that there's a lot we're doing to destroy it, even though we may not see it. And if we can pick those things up, we can open the door to having lives that are just well worth living. So it's interesting you mentioned Semmelweis. He certainly was revolutionary in his intuition and the things he espoused at the time. But it's also instructive that he faced vitriolic pushback from experts, uh, so-called experts and contemporaries. Some believe that that led to severe changes in his mental health. A lot of the things he promoted were flatly rejected or at least not even recognized during his lifetime, and he went insane. It makes me wonder what was happening inside of him at the time from a biome standpoint when he was facing such extraordinary emotional toil on the outside. Even today, I'm sure there are lighter but vivid illustrations of getting pushback about new ideas in science, about advancing fronts in our understanding of things that frankly, are somewhat repellent, like your poop, noxious or toxic stuff that you eat, the bacteria growing inside of you. You can almost see people recoil sometimes if you discuss it very far. Have you found welcome audiences widely when you promote broader discussions about your gut microbiome? It's a great question. And, and I'm not sure what you've heard or experienced in your career here, Dr. Parker, but like yeah, anytime we have something revolutionary, anytime we have something new, anytime we have something different in whatever field, it's often met with a lot of criticism. And it's really interesting because in the world of inflammatory bowel disease, again, my specialty there is that we're reversing cases left, right, and center. And like people in full clinical and histological remission I just had a client last night we were speaking to her. She went in for a CT enterography and it came back completely clear. No signs of Crohn's disease whatsoever. And so my question is, why do we push back so much against the possibility when we have the evidence, clinically and anecdotally, we can say, okay, we know these people are getting better. We know they're in full clinical symptomatic histological remission. Yet the idea is, I'll tell you, a couple of months back, it was a year ago now, I put a post on my Facebook page. I said, I believe that nine out of 10 cases of ulcerative colitis can be reversed. And I got dragged through the mud on Reddit. I got harassed. I got threatened. I had people blowing up my inbox and booking up my schedules three weeks at a time, like nope at fu.com and the hate that I got for the statement. Meanwhile, you know, someone we just got a new testimonial from days prior to this post, 16 years with severe ulcerative colitis, every biologic under the sun. She saw the Mayo Clinic did the works and she was getting no relief. In three weeks, she was down from 30 to 50 bowel movements a day, crippling pain she compared to childbirth. And she's got kids, I believe her. Uh, blood, mucus, the works. And in three weeks, she's down to five and six bowel movements a day. Now that's an abnormal case, right? It's not as common as most that we would see. But the point being, we can see a lot of instant reversal by dealing with some really basic things. Now, getting into GI mapping and microbiome testing and all of that, that's a whole other world that we're, you know, we love. It's the cornerstone of what I do, though some disagree. But the point is that we see astronomically improved gut health by looking in the gut biome, the things that influence that biome. And we're seeing fully reversed cases of IBD, yet we are still getting a lot of pushback from certain communities. 
Um, I have people who have blocked me in my own Facebook groups for saying the things that I say. Meanwhile, people are getting better. So it's just a really interesting dichotomy, I'd say, and mindset around these processes, just like Dr. Semmelweis. I mean, he was ostracized. He lost his job. He got pushed back from everybody until he ended up, like you said, all the stress in his life that I imagine broke down and led to his health issues uh, rather than being celebrated. But that also, I believe, may have come off the backs of doctors not wanting to be blamed for giving women this childbed fever or not wanting to be blamed for the deaths of all these pregnant women or these, these postnatal women. And so the human element is really messy when it comes to science and medicine. And that's something that I think we're always going to battle from now and the future. It's certainly fair to say that it's an evolving science. Everything is by definition, but uh, some of the statistics you cited early on, the relatively short period of time, we've even been aware of bacteria, let alone its implications. The colossal breadth of bacterial variation within uh, various human guts and the staggering numbers of bacteria that each human hosts, assuming that we're the host and the bacteria is uh, visiting and not the other way around. But those numbers highlight the fact that, boy, we've got a lot to learn. What's good bacteria? What's bad bacteria? What are the ratios that may really promote health? And it's certainly not as simple as we used to think the bacteria bad and absence of bacteria good, it's way more nuanced and therefore evolving all the time. So mm. if, if you would say that gut health is connected to mental health and emotions and sleep and productivity and concentration on and on, hormones, inflammation, sickness, detoxification, cravings, pick out a couple of those for me, if you would. and. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about how you believe gut health is directly connected to those entities. Sure. So, I mean, we can start with some of the basics as well. And, and Dr. Park, you could just clarify your listener base. I mean, they're obviously listening to the doctors at the lasting impact here. So I'm sure they're, they're pretty well versed. Would that be a fair statement? I guess we hope so, but we always try to keep it real uh, so that everybody okay. understands what we're talking about. I guess I might preempt you one bit to say biome. What does that mean? You know, establish a glossary. Well, that means, from my view, a collection of bacteria in a given area on your body. In this case, the 20 to 35 feet between your mouth and the anus and the overall milieu produced by that grouping of bacteria. All the living things that occupy that space make up the biome, but that mm. biome may have an implication in its totality for your health. And that's what that word means. Is that I think fair? It's a brilliant definition. Uh, and again, you're classically trained, you're clinically trained. I'm not a medical doctor. And so what I have is clinical experience, personal experience. Um, and what I've learned as a medical lecturer, the things that I do bring to functional medicine academies that I get to teach these doctors and I get to learn from them as well. And so I think these definitions are always evolving, but I think right now that's a brilliant statement is exactly that. It's sort of this ecosystem of microbes that live in us. And it's not just bacteria, it's yeast and fungi and viruses and all kinds of stuff that make us us in those neighborhoods 
they cross and they communicate, but they are neighborhoods, right? The microbiome in your mouth is very much related to the one in your, in your small, large intestine, your stomach or wherever else, because they all travel through each other, but they are still different colonies. The one on your skin, right? They're all different. But I think that's an excellent description. And when we start looking at how our gut bacteria influence things, like let's start number one, we talk about mental health. So if we look at anxiety, for example, there is situational anxiety, but a lot of people might have better nerves than others. Someone dealing with chronic inflammation, for example, throughout their body, who maybe has arthritis that comes back to the gut, they might have more anxiety. We just say commonly their nerves are on end or they're on edge. We look at up to 90 plus percent of the neurotransmitters we need are made in the gut. We also look at how hormones affect, right? Especially women dealing with really severe PMS symptoms. I always go back to the gut. So we know that a lot of our gut bacteria can manage a lot of those hormones. And if our gut bacteria have overgrowth or inflammation, we also tend to see an increase in something called beta-glucuronidase, which as doctors, you'd be more familiar with this one than maybe the audience. But what it can do is just recirculate all kinds of toxins and hormones and estrogens throughout the body, leading to these other imbalances, which again, can further impact moods and health and brain health. And so... We look at anxiety, depression, irritability, hormones. It's all connected by a lot of different pathways. Um, if we look at joint pain and arthritis, right, we know leaky gut is a real thing. Dr. Alessio Fasano actually has a paper called All Diseases Begin in the Leaky Gut. It's something about the um, mediated release of zonulin and all kinds of leaky gut issues that happen. But long and short, if we look at the, the pathway on how things come from your gut to the rest of your body, right, your small intestine, it's one cell thick. But really before we enter the bloodstream and the lymphatics and the large intestines really too. And so as things start to pass through this gut barrier, they travel into the superhighway of your blood, your lymphatic system. And bacteria, we talked about these good bacteria, bad bacteria ratios. I believe they all have a role to play. You know, um, E. coli, um, candida, all these different bacteria or fungi have a role to play. But out of balance, they, they're, they're problematic. And we start to get these extra production of something we call lipopolysaccharides or LPS. Another word is endotoxins, which then circulate around into the blood through the lymphatics. And they can travel around creating things like joint pain or inflammation elsewhere, which can lead to other mental health decline and all kinds of stuff. So it's a really complex process. But simply put, when we look at how the gut connects to the superhighways, which connect to everything, we can really connect the dots of some of these disease processes. You mentioned the one cell thickness between gut and bloodstream or absorption, and that's that's somewhat unique in the body in the sense that you have to go through some layers of skin before you're really readily absorbed. You have to breathe in air and get it past your cilia and various other bouncers, if you will, to get all the way into the lung club until you're down to one cell thick between the outside, if you will, and the bloodstream. Whereas the gut is really the outside. It's connected to the outside. And yet we being the organism are right next to it. We're right next to it, only a cell away. So you could imagine it's pretty easy to be leaky when you're down to... <laughs> Say it's drywall, people. It's not, you know, layers of uh, brick and mortar. It's it's really just a paper on the drywall between the outside world and you when it comes to the gut. So, how do we 
get these bacteria in the first place? How do we develop a healthy gut to start out? That's one of my favorite questions. And it never ceases to amaze me what the human body does, how it's capable. We get closer to nature, how amazing these things are. You know, we talked about how our gut bacteria in utero, we get them from our mom and her mom and her mom. And if we go right back to the very base of, it, of everything, right, we look at birth. Fortunately and unfortunately, I'll say, our gut bacteria, they start in utero while we're being born. But the unfortunate thing is, there's a lot of things working against us. You know, there was a study done in 2004 by the Red Cross, you're probably familiar with, where they took 10 freshly cut umbilical cords and found something like 287 different chemicals from petroleum products, burning coal, cigarettes, gasoline, garbage in these babies. 180 of these chemicals are known to cause cancer. Uh, 217 were toxic to the brain and the nervous system. 208 known to cause birth defects and abnormal development in animal tests. And so they're really messing with us early on. But our gut bacteria, it comes from the placenta that we get right away. And so that's what's starting to develop, I believe. I mean, it's ongoing science, but we can surmise how these gut bacteria or these other microbes in the placenta, whether they're in our gut or not, interact with our body's own cells, with the stem cells, with developing fetal cells. And we know that chimerism between mom and baby, they interchange. So those bacteria are interchanging between them as well. And so when the baby is now born, they got all these microbes in their blood, through the placenta, through everything. And then we, we see they're born. Now, vaginal birth is optimal, of course, for those who can handle it, who uh, are medically and clinically able to and not at risk for any major complications, where they're able to, de to, de to deliver vaginally. We know the babies are covered, inoculated in bacteria all over their skin, in their mouth, in their eyes, as they're coming through the birth canal. But also, unfortunately, we also can see that C-section rates are coming up. In 1990, C-section rates were at uh, 7%, 21% today, estimated to be as high as 29% by 2030. And so babies are already being set up from day one to not get what they're supposed to be getting through the birth canal. But provided they are, let's say, vaginal birth coming through the birth canal, and then they're now breastfed, the first three days, mom produces colostrum. And that lays down a huge, thick turf of microbes and proteins and all kinds of stuff in the baby's gut that can develop as they continue to breastfeed. And that starts to develop this field. And I look at the gut bacteria as like a meadow, right? A brand new meadow is grown as seeds start to blow in, there's dirt or whatever happens to bring it in and plant life starts to grow. Now, if we hit that with a forest fire or salt and gasoline right away, like we would antibiotics as an infant or pharmaceutical medications and all these different things, we're putting damage to that meadow. But if that meadow is allowed to cultivate, we bring in new microbes, new plant life, new animals, new critters that come in, that meadow can grow and develop trees and come a forest. And you know, 40 years later, it looks like the Amazon. And that's beautiful. That's nature taking course. But that requires all these things to be started from early on. It requires vaginal birth and breastfeeding as opposed to formula. I mean, there are some women out there who are not able to breastfeed. That is the way it is. And so I want to preface that because I have people get upset for me or at me with putting these statistics out there. But we know, statistically speaking, babies who are strictly formula fed versus breastfed are twice as likely to die from SIDS plus all kinds of other complications like asthma, developmental delays, and diabetes, and all kinds of issues um, you know, early on. So that's how our microbes start. It's 
in utero, it's from birth, it's from breastfeeding, and then it's as we develop over time, provided that meadow can grow. It's the foods we eat, the bacteria we take in. It's you know getting dirt in your fingers and putting your fingers in your mouth or picking your nose as a child. All those microbes inoculating, your immune system starting to develop this really beautiful process over time as you develop your own little uh, GI rainforest. So certainly as a parent, I know that many times we draw from the Department of Rationalization and watch your kid eat something horrific off the ground and think, <laughs> oh, that's really, you know, hey, they're doing what they got to do to, uh, now I'm going to say to work on their meadow. But go a little further. What happens after that? I mean, to wit, there are millions upon millions of people who were delivered by C-section, never breastfed, who have seemingly perfect gut health and are living very healthy lives. How do we continue through young adulthood and adulthood. And of course, that would then segue uh, to the next question, which is, what do we do about it now? What if the horse has left the barn from this uh, infant standpoint? And how do we improve our gut health going forward? Well, it's a fantastic question. And you know, starting off with a bad hand dealt with all these chemicals in the body, being formula fed or C-section birth, and you know, maybe being in the hospital, spending time in NICU and being given antibiotics, you are dealt a bad hand, unfortunately. It doesn't mean you're doomed, but it might mean you're working an uphill battle. And so as we start to grow, we know that microbial diversity, the more variety of bacteria we'll say we have in the gut, that's directly correlated to all these healthy outcomes, better cognition, better body health, brain health, resistance to diseases or breakdown or chronic inflammatory processes. And so you're going to lack that diversity, but it doesn't mean you can't introduce it. We can eat fermented foods. We can consume probiotics, even though not all probiotics culture and stick. Some come in, come out, but even dead bacteria can have great benefits. And so it's really up to us to get out there, to get into nature. Those who have pets are shown to have greater microbial diversity or variety of gut bacteria than those who live by themselves. And the best we see are those who live on farms or live in nature, like in tents and, you know, we'll say the hippie lifestyle growing up in the woods because they're interacting with nature. They're taking in microbes or eating berries off a tree that maybe a moose just peed on. You know, like we're getting these different inoculations that maybe we're not aware of, but we know there's a correlation between variety, animal life and nature and the foods we consume, the variety of foods, traveling, hugging friends and family. Because it's not just what we eat and ingest. We also have these biomes all over our skin, which you get from hugging, but also the hollow biome, which extends out about six feet and where all these microbes can interact with each other. And so it's this really fascinating process of human interaction, interacting with nature that can actually build these microbes anyway. The worst thing we can do if you're already dealt a bad hand from birth is live by ourselves in an apartment and sit on the computer all day. The best thing we can do is get pets, visit friends, be social, travel, eat different foods, experience life. And that experience itself comes with these benefits of growing your own immune system and your microbiomes. Well, first, I would submit that one of the worst things you can do for yourself is sit on your computer all day, irrespective of gut health. But <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> talk about not cultivating your meadow, uh, maybe in this case, your mind's meadow. It's interesting that whenever you may be listening to this podcast, we're recording it right around Thanksgiving time in the United States. And I'm certainly struck by the fact that 
there is a risk to drawing together lots of out-of-towners and drawing people together and hugging family, particularly from an infectious disease standpoint, at certain times and certain ways for certain individuals. But there's also potentially tremendous benefit to the interactivity between humans, as you're highlighting here, too, that the, the routine, uh, reasonable interaction with others is so good for us on so many levels, of course, emotionally, of course, socially, uh, of course, psychologically, but perhaps as real as what kinds of bacteria will live in your gut by the new year as well. That's it's a fascinating concept. Again, perhaps repellent for some, but real for all. <laughs> well, if we want to understand how much microbes are everywhere, it is a little disgusting when you think about like, what it means to kiss somebody or to visit family. It's quite repulsive. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's true. But again, speaking as a parent, I realize the amount of interchange between a mother and child and it's as natural as can be. And the exchange of bacteria there is is real, no matter how careful one is when sick, for example, et cetera. It really is a beautiful process. And I try not to overthink it because, you know, you look at these microbes under a microscope, they look, they're, they're horrific looking, a lot of them, but it really is this beautiful synergy, like you said, between a parent and a child or family and how it all works. It's just we're designed to enjoy life and be in community. And that directly reflects in the science of it, in our biomes and our health. It's really quite amazing. Uh, are you Canadian? I am very Canadian. Yep. So I might amend this question a little bit to drag you down with me, but <laughs> why is the USA or in this case, why is North America perhaps the gut disease capital of the world? Mm. I do lump myself in these statistics as well, coming from CDC reports, because we're so close. I grew up in a border city, Windsor, Ontario. I visited Detroit all the time. Like Canada and America are closer than we maybe would like to think. Culturally, maybe a bit different, but health-wise, very similar. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I specialize in gut disease, Crohn's and colitis. And in clinical and Western medicine, it's one of those diseases that's thought to be autoimmune. It's idiopathic which means no known cause, or it's environmental and we can't figure it out. So take these drugs and hopefully we don't cut out your colon. And so I use that as an example to say specifically, if we look at the stats behind inflammatory bowel disease, right back in 1990, depending on who you ask, there was anywhere from one and a half to maybe 3 million different cases worldwide, right? Back in 1990. Today, it's upwards of 7 million. And according to the CDC's own data, more than half of those cases are in the USA alone. Now, the United States of America is less than 5% of the global population, but they have more than 50% of the inflammatory bowel disease cases. So my thoughts are, if it's genetic, that's a statistical improbability. And if it's idiopathic, we sure as hell figure out where it's coming from really fast because we got a problem on our hands, right? It's an epidemic. And so I look at these gut diseases, and this is something I lecture on. I've had the, the absolute blessing to, to work with Priority Health Academy to lecture in the functional medicine space there. But we spend a lot of time, the medical community, differentiating things like IBS from IBD. So that's your irritable bowel syndrome from inflammatory bowel disease. They say, well, they're different processes, they're different diseases. Let's categorize them. But symptomatically, they're almost the exact same, but just a level of severity. And so what I'm doing is saying, why don't we consider going back and blurring the lines a little more? So if we can go back and say, 
like the autoimmune spectrum. If you're not familiar with Dr. Amy Meyer, she talks about that in her book, The Autoimmune Solution. Uh, fantastic read, especially for the general population. But we look at these risk factors, right? So there's two ways I see gut disease come on, typically in my practice. Number one, it's an acute insult or injury to the biome in some way, be it mold toxicity and infection, be it antibiotic use or Lyme disease, like something directly insulting the immune system or the gut biome. Number two, it's accumulation of disease. And so that's accumulation of toxins, like right from birth, things we do, eating, drinking, smoking, fast food, stress, whatever it is over time. And so I look at these diseases as sort of a wear and tear process where it's like if you were walking in a pair of shoes, going for a run with no socks, your heel's going to get a bit irritated. It turns red, it gets blistered, it gets raw, and then it bleeds. And that's sort of this degradation process we see of people going from irritable bowel to inflammatory bowel disease in the accumulation stage, other than those who are like a couple of days or weeks, they now have IBD out of nowhere. And so it's really interesting to follow this journey. If someone has something like acid reflux, what do most doctors do? They give them antacids. Well, the number one cause for acid reflux is actually low stomach acid because our sphincters in our stomach are both pH and pressure sensitive. So if we have low stomach acid, we lack the acidity and the fluid volume to keep them closed. We get this refluxing. Well, then we give them antacids, which dysregulates the gut bacteria because your stomach acid is allowing God knows whatever to come through. It messes up the assembly line. It dysregulates the speed at which things get digested. And so we're seeing a lot of these things starting really benign. Maybe it's bloat. Maybe it's acid reflux. Maybe it's a medication or antibiotics a couple times a year for a cold or a flu the doctor gives. Whatever it may be, this dysregulates the system, which wears and tears and breaks down over time, now leading to a progression of disease until this inflammation has set in for so long, maybe it now does become autoimmune. And now we have autoimmune disorders. We have other conditions through inflammation like leaky gut like anxiety, depression, joint pain, eczema, psoriasis, asthma, whatever it may be. And so it's this really complicated process. But to circle back to answer the question directly, why I believe the United States is the gut disease capital of the world. One, pesticide usage is up two to four times. We dump about a billion pounds of pesticides on our crops every year. The variety of pesticides we consume is up 19 times since 1990. C-section rates are on the rise. Chemicals are on the rise. Breastfeeding is coming down. Only 41% of infants under six months are exclusively breastfed. On top of fast food spend, $750 billion a year, the average American consumes 100 pounds of sugar per year, which feed inflammation and gut bacteria. Global antibiotic consumption is up 43% in the last 25 years. Medication spend is trillions. I mean, the healthcare system is $4.5 trillion a year, give or take. Yet we're seeing cancer cases on the rise. The survivability is higher. We're getting more cancer, more sickness, more heart disease, earlier death, regardless of spending the most on healthcare in the world. And I think it comes down to a lot of our foods, our regulations, our processes. And it's a very scary trend we're seeing, um, gut disease being on the rise, especially if we can connect gut disease to almost every disease or regular cause of death, we say, under the sun. Many people have heard the adage, garbage in, garbage out. I wish that were more true in this particular instance in that we may be putting in an ever-declining quality of diet and contaminants into the top end, but it doesn't all come out. And the processing of it in the middle uh, leaves a lot of residual rubbish uh, with long-lasting implications. Stored. I guess I would highlight 
one thing with regard to GERD as an example, and that is, from my perspective, the not one size fits all. GERD is a reflux of acid up into the esophagus from the stomach causing heartburn-like symptoms. And that can occur for a variety of reasons. One that you highlight that perhaps the sphincter, the door that keeps the top lid closed to the stomach, uh, isn't getting the right signals from the pH or the acidity within the stomach. And I, I have heard that line of reasoning that if you lower the pH, you send a stronger signal to the sphincter to close and keep the acid where it belongs. For a number of patients, that may be true. For other patients, though, they may have a problem with the sphincter, a pro mm -hmm. an incompetence of the sphincter, and that would be akin to trying to slam the door harder or complaining more about how cold it is in here when the door doesn't fit correctly. And so sometimes the same answer or the same treatment, increasing the acidity of the stomach, may not be the answer for everyone. And it, it's probably a good time to emphasize that individuals may have different correct answers for them and their gut health and their particular set of issues. And consultation with uh, medical professionals is always advised. Um, and thank you for bringing that up because I think that's really important as well. And, and I'm glad you caught that because I'm definitely not saying it's a one size fits all. Uh, and for all of our listeners here, the information I'm providing is strictly from my practice and clinical experience and what, you know, I work with these functional medicine doctors and specialists that we see on kind of a commonality, but you're absolutely right, Dr. Parker, is that everyone's so vastly different. There's never a one size fits all. Sometimes there is just mechanical issues where like the door itself just won't close for some reason. Now, is that just simply due to stomach acid every time? No. Is it what I see mostly for sure? And I'm sure you have lots of experience you've seen in your own practice um, where it's been very, very different. Um, and maybe it's, I've seen stuff psychologically like related to trauma. I've seen overeating, but I'm sure you've seen like true mechanical issues where there's even developmental issues or just can't close for whatever reason. I'm sure you've tried all those things. And so I'm glad you brought that up because it is very, very different for everyone. And sometimes, you know, specializing in gut, if you give me a hammer, eventually everything can look like a nail. And so I do have to be careful as myself, you know, uh, in one area of practice, not to paint everything with the same brush. Oh, I think we all do. I mean, the GERD example continues where people might get into the nuance of, should I be raising or lowering my stomach pH while they're smoking a pack of cigarettes? Hmm. It, it's, it, you got to look at the whole picture. And, and that's, of course, where a careful listening practitioner is going to, to help, but also self-awareness, being willing to examine oneself and one's own habits before one looks for a simple solution to, albeit a very difficult or nagging set of symptoms. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, pivot just a little bit and talk about specific foods. I'm interested in a term that I find curious is probiotic. Okay. If it sounds positive, sounds good. I should eat some good. yogurt. I should give your kid probiotics. They're having diarrhea. Again, to stress the incredible diversity in bacteria and the ratios and the relative presence of those various bacteria may be as important as individual actors on the stage. 
Talk to us about foods and things that you think generally trend towards positive or healthier gut bacteria and things that don't. Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. Now, you mentioned probiotic foods in general. Ferments can have these probiotic, uh, probiotic bacteria in them. And there's, there's three things that we'll want to look at. There's probiotics, prebiotics, and postbiotics. Probiotics are these living organisms, the bacteria we actually consume, typically through ferments and other things. Postbiotics are what your bacteria produce. Right? When we eat, we poop. When bacteria eat, they poop. Now, are they pooping good things or bad things? Depends on what they're eating and, well, really the ratios. And then prebiotics are the foods that we feed our bacteria. You know, if you were to put fish food in a fish tank, it's basically what it is. The fish food is the prebiotic, the fish is the probiotic, and their poop is the postbiotic. And so it really all works uh, cyclically. And bacteria tend to love to eat carbs, fibers, starches. Bad bacteria love sugar. Um, they like things they can ferment and turn into benefits like short-chain fatty acids, and they can create all kinds of vitamins and, and stuff inside. And so the foods we consume, it really is hit and miss. And I know you asked me earlier, I'm not sure if it's going to be part of this recording or just a good to meet you question, but you asked me what I ate today. And I was like, I had a steak covered in butter. And so as a nutritionist, I get a lot of questions. What's the best diet? What are the foods I should be eating? I think it really depends on the individual. In general, I don't always advocate for a plant-based diet. And it's not so much the plants themselves. And that's a huge debate. That's something I'll leave for you know the carnivore doctors themselves. But unfortunately, a lot of plants that we talked about, four times the pesticide usage, billions of, or billion pounds a year, and 19 times the variety of pesticides consumed in the last 30 years, because of mega manufacturing, because of monocropping. And so unfortunately, a lot of our nutrients, you know, there are some studies suggesting you need to eat eight oranges today to get the same nutrients your great-great-grandmother would have gotten from one. And so if we start to look at our food quality, there is a lot more bioavailability, in my opinion. At least, again, you can always pick articles to say, well, plants are better, animals are better. But in my research, in my opinion, the animal-based meats and vegetable or meat and nutrients are more bioavailable than vegetables and plant-based. On the other hand, there are some people who can't digest a lot of fibers well because of their microbial state. And so I do a lot of GI mapping. GI maps are one of the cores of what I do in my practice. Now, for those who don't know, a GI map is sort of a DNA analysis. It's sort of the bird's eye view of your gut bacteria. Now, keeping in mind, we have thousands of different variety right? With several different strains of each, multiplying up to about a hundred trillion bacteria, we can say there's 15 to 30 million different types of bacteria inside of our gut. And a GI map shows us 50, maybe a hundred different bacteria. So it really is a snapshot. But I can see on there tangibly, do you have overgrowth of the bacteria we do know and can study? If you have a lot of overgrowth, you're probably going to do poorly on a plant-based diet with a lot of grains and legumes because they're fermenting those and pooping these bad postbiotics. So they're causing inflammation contributing to your problem. And so I might go to more of a low fiber, low sugar, animal-based diet for those people. But I've had clients come in with very poor microbial diversity, meaning they don't have all these varieties of bacteria. And so I might put them on more of a fermented or more of a plant-based diet to introduce different microbes. And so it really does depend. And this is really the importance I'd say of where intuition comes in. You know, there's a difference between cravings and intuition. For example, women, when they're on their period, they tend to crave chocolate. It's kind of the perfect food. We need those carbohydrates to produce progesterone. We need the iron. I mean, like there's going to be a typical craving for iron because of the bleeding and the blood loss. 
And chocolate is delicious. It boosts the mood. It boosts serotonin and dopamine. There's magnesium in it, typical chocolate. And so that might be a reason why women will crave chocolate specifically. It's kind of like the, the gold standard for period foods. On the other hand, that's a deficiency. So your body's saying, I need these foods. But if you drive through a drive through and go, mm, that McDonald's smells good, there's no nutrients in there your body's craving. It's just we might have an addiction or hungry or whatever it is. Maybe we're lacking proper fats and proteins. And so we crave sugars and carbs and quick calories, quick things to feed us. And so it really does differ on the individual. But I'd say if you can go a good month and really clean up your diet, eat nothing but whole foods, like things on the perimeter of the grocery store, plants and vegetables and fruits and animal products. And then after a month, if you're having cravings, maybe start digging into what you're craving and why, because you could be deficient. And so I wish that was sort of a, a more direct answer to your question about the foods. I wouldn't make a good politician. I don't pick a left or a right. I'm kind of in the middle. And I think it's really case by case dependent. Well, you don't have to be a good politician if the answer is one policy is not going to be correct for the entirety of your citizenry. I, I certainly am very much in agreement that I don't believe in dieting per se. I believe in systems of eating, of methods that are right for the individual patient. I am a huge advocate for whole foods. That's not the uh, commercial enterprise of the same name per se, but Foods that uh, have not been processed or broken down and reprocessed with a variety of chemicals, let's say. It came, I, I love the adage that if it's a plant, you probably can eat it. If it was manufactured in a plant, then maybe you should think twice. But I like that. And while I may come down much more closely personally uh, toward a plant-based diet, I can understand that the right answer for an individual is not whatever happens to be at the front of the shelf in the bookstore, in the diet and health section that week. It's different for different people. One could easily argue that the concept of biomagnification comes into play. And here, you, here we are worried about pesticides on plants maybe very rightfully so, but you only eat that plant at any given time. Whereas if you feed several tons of those plants to an animal, they are capable of biomagnifying it, meaning concentrating some of the bad things into their flesh, and then later to be eaten, whether that's a fish or an, a land animal, later to be eaten by another land-based animal like us. And oh, isn't that that not that worrisome? Yeah, it is. It really is. It's worrisome, but it doesn't necessarily mean the pesticides were okay for you to eat on a plant. I, I see countless examples of people who follow a vegetarian diet and are knocking out cupcakes at a, a furious pace and processed sugars and processed plants. And I, I think sometimes we're defeating ourselves by adherence to certain labels and perhaps non-benign neglect of other things that come with it. Um, well, that, thank you. So I was just going to say, it's really well stated because I, I think what we're getting at here really isn't so much a problem with the foods, but the food system, the food production, the monocropping, the mega manufacturing. I think that's where the problem lies. I think all these foods weigh equally in the body circumstantially, but I think it really is how it's being produced. That's the problem. 
I would agree with that very much. So a fascinating discussion. We referenced it with the Semmelweis discussion, but I'm struck by another lesson from history where Louis Pasteur discovers pasteurization or the heating of foods or various things in order to kill bacteria in them that might cause disease. But it took 50 years before that was common practice to pasteurize milk, for example, in the United States. There's sometimes a long lag between scientific advances and widespread adoption, or even non-widespread adoption. In this conversation with you about the importance of gut health, about the emerging science of our gut microbiomes and its interconnectedness with everything from our day-to-day physical health, perhaps GI symptoms, but also to things like emotions and mental health. You know, I hope it isn't a long time. I, I hope it doesn't take forever for us to realize that there may be so many positive aspects of this interconnectedness and these gains in knowledge. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Unfortunately, I think the number is something like 17 years for a paper or a new study to come out and actually to disseminate into medicine for it to become practice and upwards of another 20 or so before it's commonplace. And so if those numbers are correct, we're talking 30 to 40 years before something is sort of discovered before it's common. Like you talked about the pasteurized milk taking 50 years. And so it's just really interesting where we see research in medicine and Maybe that has to do with how widespread it is, how many millions of doctors are in the world, how many millions of researchers and conflicting opinions. And, you know, the evidence has to be so hard before it's really accepted to be common practice. So we go, okay. And even then there's always a yeah, but right with everything. And so whether it's contradicting practice or habits or knowledge or belief systems or whatever it is, and I think there's an importance to flexibility and understanding, you know? For example, there are a lot of influencers out there in the social space who are doctors or biologists or whatever who will talk about things like red dye 40 or yellow number five or aspartame and say, well, we don't have the data to prove it's bad, but we have 400 plus studies correlating between red dye 40 and mental health or ADHD or gut disease or whatever it is. So at what point do we look? Because there's so many variables in life, you know, that we can, we can say, well, it's correlated, but not connected because there's other variables. We can't say this is the culprit, right? Kind of innocent till proven guilty. But how many times do we see it at the scene of the crime before we start to remove it from our lives? And I think that's a really important thing. I'd like to see medicine adopt over time. I say often that at least in five-year increments over a 30-plus year career in medicine, Man, I've got a long list of things I used to do five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that that was the state of the art at the time that I consider almost laughable and in rare cases barbaric today. But to kind of round out that scientific discussion, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay attention to what the state of the art science shows at any given time. If you just sort of try and stuff, just sort of random stuff, or you let yourself become too influenced by uh, social media things, or if, frankly, you hear just what you want to hear because it fits with whatever feels good or is the current lifestyle, 
then that is certainly to your peril as well. There's real value in emerging science, even as by definition, it is emerging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Well, this is a fascinating conversation. I really have enjoyed it. I will pay very close attention to what I spend all day cooking on Thanksgiving here in the United States. But I think more importantly, we all should pay very close attention to the one of the most consistent things we do, which is put things into our intestinal tract, whether it's food or whether it is unintended accompaniments and how dramatic the effect may be on our ongoing health to all those decisions we make wittingly or not. I, I don't think there's anything else I could possibly add to that. I think you've wrapped this whole interview up just so brilliantly. Just be mindful. Tell me where people can find out more about you, where they might find you in the uh, worldwide interweb. Yeah, best place to reach me would be at Reversible. Um, you can check out the, the podcast. It's Reverse Able, the ultimate gut health podcast. You can always go to reverseable.com. Uh, there's all kinds of free resources on there. And you can, of course, uh, always welcome to listen to the show if you want to dial in more on gut health. We've had just some of the most amazing doctors on earth coming on and specialists. We've had farmers and homesteaders talking about the food we grow and where it comes from. We've had um, Dr. Mindy Pels and Dr. Leo Galland and Dr. Joel Ferriman and William Lee and just so many amazing minds on the show to share the two cents on how the gut interacts with our world and how our world really interacts with the gut. And so it's just been an absolute pleasure to create this show and to just help the world understand how important it is to develop that reverence and keep themselves happy. So that's can be found at Reverse Able, the Ultimate Gut Health Podcast. That's great. Well, again, a real pleasure to talk to you, Josh Deck a holistic nutritionist, and a fascinating guy all around. That's all for today. Please connect with us and let's partner together for you or your organization. Use the community link in the show notes. Even better, drop us a line at info at .com to suggest topics or guests for the podcast. On Instagram, we are at lastingimpactwellness. We ask that you download, subscribe to our podcast, and please rate it highly. Most of all, find a person to share it with to increase their well-being too. As always, thank you to all of our listeners near and far for your time and your energy. I'm Dr. Parker Hayes. Let's be well together.